Welcome to Media Path. I'm Louise Palanker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. When we were kids, our Media Path was two daily newspapers, three TV channels, five radio stations, and a neighbor who yelled at her kids with the windows open. Today's Media Path can seem like a very confusing intersection where every possible turn requires a password and two-factor authentication. We can't help you log into Netflix, but we can advise you to call your grandson and listen to our destination recommendations. So, Fritz... What have you found along your media path? I have a great book this week. I loved it so much I brought it to you because I want you to read it. It's called Any Given Tuesday, A Political Love Story by Liz Smith. If you're a political junkie like Wheezy and I, doesn't matter where you sit on the political spectrum, you'll devour this book. Liz Smith is a political strategist who's worked with some of the biggest players in national politics. The book is about human nature at the peaks of political power. Liz Smith is known for her hand-to-hand combat, admitting that sometimes you have to break a couple of rules to get stuff done. This woman is a gutsy, tough-as-nails operator. The book starts with her being a political intern when she was a student at Dartmouth College. College and working your way up to a national reputation for running campaigns. You'll learn about every campaign having highs and lows. You can be successful even if your candidate loses. You'll learn that running a campaign is like being an emergency room doctor 24-7, you're on call. You'll learn about finessing the press. And you'll learn that the worst thing you can do is to fall in love with a controversial politician, which she did with Governor Elliot Spitzer. She became as much fodder for tabloid press as he was. You'll read about the campaigns of John Edwards, Governor John Corzine of New York, Senator Claire McCaskill, President Barack Obama, and her most recent gig, running the presidential campaign of Mayor Pete. Buttigieg. You'll learn what a savvy and brave and poised candidate Mayor Pete was behind the scenes. Again, it doesn't matter what your politics are. It's a great deep dive into the nuts and bolts of the business. Wow. I want to hear about her love story with Elliot Spitzer. Mm -hmm. Sounds super hot. Fritz, I don't often go in for gore, but when you call it gothic mystery period thriller, I'm in. Okay, so The Pale Blue Eye by Lewis Bayard builds a beautiful work of fiction upon Edgar Allan Poe's actual six month tenure at the West Point Military Academy in 1830. Poe's eventual work of renown informs many aspects of the story in which retired constable Gus Lander is called into West Point to solve a grisly murder and is assisted by a lyrically gifted and insightful fourth classman named Edgar Allan Poe. A cadet has been found hanging by the neck from a tree with his heart carved out of his body. Poe tells Lander that the culprit must be a poet because the heart is nothing if not a symbol, a foreshadowing or an inspiration for the telltale heart in which the narrator murders an old man with a filmy pale blue vulture eye and buries him beneath the floorboards only to be haunted by the sound of his beating telltale heart. So, Much of the book is inspired by Poe's literary contributions, which include our first English-language detective stories. Bayard tells his story in the alternate voices of logical Lander and fanciful Poe. The author entertainingly captures the indulgently rich language of an idealistic young Poe whose inclination would be to deliciously utilize seven long, dormant Latin words when one in English would do. The beating heart of the story is the father-son mentor relationship, which nourishes the equally lonely and searching Poe and Landor as they struggle towards solving the crime and better understanding their own tragic histories. 
I became so obsessed with the writing that I listened to a podcast called Mind Over Murder featuring the author, Lewis Byard, and he does not disappoint. A truly delightful and brilliant man, he was on Jeopardy. I will be diving happily into more of his books. And well-deservedly, The Pale Blue Eye has been adapted for the Netflix screen by Scott Cooper, and it features Christian Bale as Landor and Harry Melling as Edgar Allan Poe. Harry Melling embodies Poe. He is spectacular. And did you know that as a child, he played Dudley Dursley in the Harry Potter series? The Pale Blue Eye movie, by necessity, pairs away much of the story, but ironically, the heart remains. It's stunningly filmed, and I was instantly delighted to see the 1830s West Point world about which I had been reading spring to gorgeous light on my television. This is a thrilling whodunit. You will be stunned you will be riveted, and I promise I am highly recommending, yes, this is a mega wreck, both the book by Lewis Bayard and the movie on Netflix, The Pale Blue Eye. I'm dazzled and I'm inspired. Yeah. Poe actually did go to West Point, which is interesting about yep, that. Yep, yep. And so this is all built upon that mm-hmm. little nugget of truth. The rest is, is fiction. Mm-hmm. I'm going to introduce our wonderful guest. Larry Minetti is best known for his role as Rick Wright on Magnum P.I., where he played alongside Tom Selleck. Larry also starred in Baba Black Sheep with his acting mentor, Robert Conrad. His idols include Frank Sinatra and Elvis, and he's a fan of a show on which I was a studio page, The Jefferson. So I'm sure Larry has many questions for me. Please welcome <laughs> Larry Minetti. Hey, Larry. Happy to see you, my friend. Hey, folks. Hey, How are what you? a pleasure it is to be on your show. Oh. And Fritz, I followed you for many years. Well, You're I, my hero. I appreciate hearing that, Larry. Thank you so much. You've had an amazing career, and you've crossed paths with so many, so many people. But uh, the show you did uh, just prior to Magnum, I think, was Baba Black Sheep. And the reason I loved that show so much with Robert Conrad, your mentor, was that it was based on a true character, Pappy Boyington. You played Bobby Boyle, who was a, a fighter pilot. I loved that show because it was a reflection of a, a man who was a real hero in American history. Right. Well, it was um, iconic. It still is in reruns, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And uh, very proud of the show. Uh, Pappy Boynton was he he is exactly what he was portrayed to be one tough son of a gun. <laughs> um, when I met him, I was in my uniform. I was a lieutenant and I was a little nervous because I knew his reputation. And I walked up and I said, uh, Major my name is Larry Minetti. And he said, your name is Lieutenant. And when you meet <laughs> the enemy boy, you spit in his face and kill in the balls. Wow. Well, this sent me back about 20 feet. <laughs> I looked at Robert Conner and he says, all right, Minetti, go get makeup, beat it. Wow. So that was the beginning of really black sheep before i did black sheep i was lucky enough to get cast by um, jack webb and wow it was the end of a series called chase i was sitting in the commissary waiting to hopefully meet a producer or a director or casting director and um in walk jack webb and he didn't look real happy, and he 
flew over and asked, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, one fellow questioned, he shook his head, walked over to me. He says, are you an actor? <laughs> I said, yes, sir. He said, come with me. They proceeded to sign me, put me under contract to Universal Studios. And I did one show, and I think NBC canceled it. That was it. And that's how it came about that I did um, Bob Bob Black Sheep and Robert Conrad literally shoved me down their throat. Well, you were a handsome devil. For him to walk into the commissary and say, we want you to be in a TV show. I look at your younger pictures, honest to God. No, he, he is a handsome devil. I, I'm I, looking I meant right that, at But him. I'm talking about, I'm putting myself in the time frame of Universal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, honest to God, you were like uh, uh, movie star quality good looks. When I look at you and Selleck together, it's a little too much testosterone on the screen at the same time. Oh, that's very nice. <laughs> well, I, I want to ask you one thing before b- before you leave. I I, I love looking through your uh, IMDb page, but I think the great badass role that you played was in a movie called The Sinatra Club, where you played a guy called Peg Leg Broncado. <laughs> yeah, I love yeah. that. That was a fun movie. Um, I had a small part, and I think. Uh, well, I don't want to say the line. It's not really a nice line. No, say it, say it. This is a podcast. Go ahead. Well, I looked up at Leo Rossi, who played uh, Vito Gambino, and I said, hey, I know f- <laughs> Oh, my goodness. I, I feel funny saying that, but it was a funny. I think it was the only funny line in the movie. <laughs> Well, you're doing it for artistic purposes. It it hasn't aged well. Let's (laughs) just, that's all. So I I was Googling you, Larry, and there's just so much fun stuff out there. For example, it looks like you did a cooking pilot with your wife and it's called, yeah, and it's on YouTube right now. So it's, it's just absolutely delightful. And uh, tell us, you have, as your guest, you had Tom Selleck, Robert Wagner, and Mike Connors, Damn, and right. you have never seen that much handsome on one couch. <laughs> it will change your dreams. Talk about the day that you spent with all these guys cooking. Well, that was that was a great day of remembrance. Um, it was Cox Communication. This is kind of a cute story, and. Um, they came to me and said, would you like to do a cooking show? Well, I said, of course. And I said, I want to do it really with my wife. She's a marvelous cook. So we both did it. And we uh, recruited Bob Wagner and Tom Selleck and Mike Connors. And... It was really a good shoot, but unbeknowing to us, the president of the company had a girlfriend. And when we were five minutes from shooting, he said to me, I have a friend that I would like to be the host of your cooking show. Oh, my God. That's the classic show business Looked at Bob Wagner, and he overheard what he said, 
and his blue eyes rolled back <laughs> in his head. I don't blame but him. The long and short of this story is that we finished this pilot, and I thought it went wonderful. But the president had a fight with his girlfriend. Well, there you go. And they split up, oh. and the president was so upset, he threw us out with his girlfriend, <laughs> and we were history. <laughs> Uh, and that was a big disappointment in my life. Because uh, it was so perfect. It was charming. If you could have a pilot with Robert Wagner, Bob Conrad, who else? Mike Connors. Mike Connors. Mannix. Oh, my God. That's that's $10 million worth you know, of talent in one time. Ironically, I would do that show with Nancy again. Oh, you guys were so cute together. Well, the bones are there, and we would get guest stars of all different venues, you know, sports, singers, and uh, do it in the living room like we did. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember we recruited, I even spoke to uh, Frank Sinatra's wife, and she said, maybe I can get Frank Jr., because I'm pretty sure Frank was gone then. And um, anyway, we were set to go, but uh, thank you for... Bringing it up. Great well, here, memory. Well, here's the thing I want to mention, Larry, because I timed this like with a stopwatch. You guys were not on that couch for four minutes before you broke into a Sinatra story. So and I think that's probably typical of guys who your age, your generation who worshipped him. So tell us your, your your Frank Sinatra story. So where do you want me to get begin on Frank? Give us I a juicy tidbit. When I was 12. I was a caddy. Really? I wound up caddying for him. And uh, unbeknowing to me, I didn't know who Frank Sinatra was. <laughs> and um, I didn't know who he was. And I called my mother. <laughs> and I said, Ma, I think there is a guy out here that I'm in the caddy for that you like. He's a singer. And she said, who is it? And I said, Frank Sinatra. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, get his autograph, and she went crazy. Oh, my God. But anyway, I caddied for him. He gave me a $100 tip, and that was in the Holy early cow. 60s. You never heard of that then, and that's how I met Francis. Wow. All right, listen, I don't want to let too much more time pass before we talk about your sort of a semi-reunion with Mr. Selleck on Blue Bloods. I think that episode's going to be on this show post on Thursday. It'll be on the day after. And uh, it'll be on Friday right. at 10 o'clock on CBS Channel 2. And you play retired cop Sam Vellucci. And how was that experience? Was it was it a smile for you to go back and work with your old pal? Well, it was a great delight. Selleck is just, they broke the mold when they made this mm -hmm. guy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I don't know whether you know or not, we did not have any scenes together. Oh. I uh, had my own routine, and Selleck did his. But, you know, we had dinner, Nancy and I and him, uh, almost every night. Mm -hmm. And we still speak every, every week. Mm -hmm. You're so, going to be part of the Magnum reboot, I think, when it moves over to NBC, right? You're going to do spots on there? Yes. 
I'm I'm so surprised that CBS let that go and it's going to NBC. I, I mean, that was like an iconic CBS show for many years. I wonder why they well, let it go. Well, I think what happened. Look, Fritz, it's like redoing Gone with the Wind. <laughs> Good if, to redo Magnum, and I'm so proud of that show, is impossible mm-hmm. because it was the... The, the guys, our friendship. I mean, we knew what each one of us were going to say before it was said. Um, we had great friendships. We played many tricks on each other on the set, which is in my book. Uh, I mean, going to work in the morning, even though it was six o'clock calls, they were a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And the new Magnum show... Is a good show. The actors are good actors, but it ain't the original Magnum. No. Sure. It's a different, totally different concept. Different ingredients. I want you to hold up your recipe. book before we say goodbye to you. Hold up Aloha Magnum. I think you have the book right to your right side there, or your wife will hand it to you. There you go. We just want to see that. It's a really interesting behind the scenes look at one of television's iconic shows. And there they are, the two guys. Right. You could uh, obtain the book. Just uh, go on your computer or telephone and go to LarryManetti.com. And uh, I promise you, it'll be a great, great read. As Betty Davis said, it'll be a great ride. <laughs> it's Listen, also on Amazon. I'm, I'm seeing it. Yeah, uh, Amazon t- as right well. There. Listen, yeah. what a treat to talk to you, Larry. You've had this amazing career. We probably should have you come back and just do an hour of Frank Sinatra and Elvis Presley stories, but we don't have time to do that right now. But we I will would sometime. love to. I'll bet you would. We would love it. Well, what an honor to speak to you, Larry. Thanks for making time for us. Bye-bye. Take Bye, care. Larry. Do the magic of editing. Yep. We're here with Tom Dreesen. Tom Dreesen is right here with us. He has been entertaining us for 50 years, making over 500 TV appearances, including over 60 on The Tonight Show. Tom was one of Letterman's favorite and frequent guests, one of his best pals, and Tom would often guest host for Dave. Tom appears regularly in Vegas, Tahoe, Reno, and Atlantic City, and he's open for Smokey Robinson, Liza Minnelli, and Sammy Davis Jr. Tom spent 13 years on the road opening for Sinatra with a career this rich with story. It's lucky for us that Tom is among the world's most eminent storytellers. Welcome, Tom Dreesen. I don't know what to say. Yeah, well, <laughs> try to that build up your head. You're going to have to say around. something. <laughs> One of the story. nicest guys in the stand-up comedy business, a business not known for nice, stable people. But he's so supportive of young comics and so supportive of the art form, and he, he's a magnet to young comics when he works places. That's kind of you. I, I, ironically, I'm doing Monday... I'm doing a motivation speech at the comedy store for new comedians. Uh, it's, it's. I think it's already sold out, but um, you might be able to get. Well, I don't want to plug it. Anyhow, but, no, plug but, it. No, I, but anyhow, I'm, I'm doing that because I love motivating young comedians, people who you know, are trying to make it in this incredibly tough business and ten times tougher than you and I started out. Absolutely. When I started out in show business in, in 1969. You know, that there might have been. Steve Allen wrote a book one time called uh, Funny People and put a chapter in there of me, but in it it said there was like 150 comedians in America who made a living at it, maybe 50,000 a year in those days. Uh, Today, there's probably 15,000. There were no comedy clubs when we started out, and then there was 
550 comedy clubs. There were three in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Comedians are, you know, t- it's so funny. And I'm babbling here, but when we started out, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. They go, wow, wow, Martha, honey, come here. Honey, honey, he's a stand-up comedian. You know what they say now? What do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. So is my wife's gynecologist. <laughs> <laughs> and our dentist, my dentist is a comedian. That's what they do. They start telling you. My but but you know what? I, I think it's really important for those young starting comics to come and see you because you have great wisdom to impart. And I remember two things you told me at the round table at the Improv, and we'll get into that in a little while. You gave me two great tips. He said, you, uh, you said you learned a great tip from the vaudeville world, which is start your act by doing two on you, which is make fun of yourself twice, and that will make people like you. And the other thing you told me was, and it was no issue for me because I work clean, you said if you work clean, you'll be infinitely richer being able to do corporate work than you will if you're blue and just in a club. And I, I've always stuck to that. And the corporate side, if, if you know, you could go work in, a, in four comedy clubs in a month, a week at each one, and then, or you can go do one corporate date and make the same exact amount of money. Exactly. So we, we're in show business. That's two words: show and business. You know, so that that always made a lot of sense. But to corporate me. guys are so. I mean, they, they. I mean, it's worse than cruise ships. They 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 parse your act and they want to make sure you're not going to embarrass them. So. Oh, I know. Yeah. Well, because agents have lost. They'll say he's a safe act. You know, agents who have big clients: IBM, American Airlines. AT&T, these are big, you know, Allstate. I I opened for Bon Jovi, and one time, and I opened one time for Elton John. They made a million dollars. I didn't. I was it was an Allstate <laughs> corporate date, you know. But I but I opened for. But it, that's how much money's out there. You know? I know. Wow. So, you know, so, so what is like the the sort of like main platform of your advice to young comedians? Like, what's the what's the message? What is it that if people knew, it would give them the fuel they needed to to keep going till they get to something. When I set up, my, I speak on four subjects, perception, visualization, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor. And I elaborate on those four points. I do that for corporate America, but I, for the comedians, I streamlined it to uh, the joy of stand-up comedy and how to get there. Most do not know how to enjoy this wonderful journey we're on, this great profession that you make people laugh for a living. And, and you know, without getting morbid here, and you have two, I've known five stand-up Great stand-up comedians who committed suicide. 85% of all stand-up comedians I've met in my life, this is my humble opinion, are insecure, neurotic, sometimes psychotic, loved, starved, wrecks, total wrecks. And the other 15% are gifted, confident people who say, I know how to write a joke and I know how to tell one. I like to think that I'm in the latter, but never trust somebody that tells you they're sane. <laughs> and so, but I, I can attest that you're in the latter. <laughs> well, thank you. But, I mean, the point is, they, uh, what I want them to do is enjoy this wonderful journey you're on. You may not become the biggest star in the world, but you, you want to make people laugh. You love making people laugh. You like to hear the sound of laughter. And so, you know, and, but enjoy the journey. Enjoy the fun. So a couple of things I, t- t- um, I elaborate on all four of those points. My, maybe the most profound is <clears throat> the credit is given to Ernest Hemingway, but he once said... Um, that there's nothing noble about being superior to another human being. True nobility lies in being superior to your former self. Am I a better friend than I was last year? Am I a better neighbor than I was last year? Am I a better husband, wife, father? Am I a better comedian than I was last year? Listen to your tapes. Your only competition is your former self. Most comedians are always envious. Oh, you know, I started out with Fritz, and Fritz is doing the Tonight Show, and we started at the same time. You're not in competition with Fritz Coleman. Mm-mm. Or you're only, listen to your tapes, have you grown? 
I'll say to the comedians, I stand up here and I tell you I'm a success as a stand-up comedian. And my critics would say, oh, you're a success? You started out with David Letterman and Jay Leno, and they've got 250 cars, 875 motorcycles, and, <laughs> and a billion more dollars. You know? and, I, and I always say to them, I was never in competition with David Letterman or Jay Leno. I wanted to be the best Tom Dreesen that I could possibly be as a stand-up comedian. And if you keep that in mind, then you won't go through a lot of the frustrations that young comedians go through in our business. You know. And if you're tr- and being true to yourself is the way you find a voice because that's the key to your journey as a comic is finding your own voice, your point of view. Mm-hmm. And you you only do that by being honest about yourself. Well, we all start out, as stand-up comedians, we all start out emulating another comedian because we know that worked. So I can watch a new comedian and say, oh, he likes David Letterman or he likes Jerry Seinfeld. Or, you know, you'll watch their style. When they're brand new, I'm talking about open micers and stuff. As time goes by, when you start out, you're doing an impression of another comedian because you know that worked. One night, you're up there and you let a little bit of you out and it doesn't get a laugh. You pull back in and you start doing this impression of another comedian. But one night, you let a little bit of you out and it gets a laugh. And then you let a little bit more of you out. And then pretty soon, pretty soon you start to come out and be you. Candid Camera had the greatest line of them all. Caught in the act of being yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and when you start becoming you on stage, that's when you start to grow in leaps and bounds. When you come from your truth, you know. When you talk to young comics, how do you notice that they're influenced by the, this just the immediate availability of watching 100 comedians in one night. It used to be when you were a kid, you know, I don't even know the first time you saw a nightclub comedian or you saw this craft that you were going to endeavor to enter. But now you can scroll through your phone and see how how do you think it's affecting comedians in terms of their confidence or are they intimidated by how good everyone is? You know, again, you made a good point. I I remember when I first started out, somebody did a survey across the land and it was like one out of every 20 people had seen a comedian live. You know, today, they from the, they're they're in high school. They're going to comedy clubs again because there's a vaudeville out there. There's 500 and something comedy clubs in America, so that you know that um, I, I think the I think the hardest part again is finding your true self. And if you're watching all these other comedians, you know what are you watching them for? Are you watching for their stage presence, their mic technique, their delivery? You know, um, you know what what are you watching them for? Are you watching them so that you can um, do material like them? If, if, you know, or I think the best thing for you to do is just stay in your own world. You know, um, again, Candy Camera saying, "Caught in the act of being yourself." Try to try to find out what it is where your sense of humor is. That the other thing too is let me let me even stop there. If the best question I, w- I was ever asked on an interview in my all my years in show business. A guy once said to me, are you a comedian who's a writer? Or are you a writer who's a comedian? Hmm. And I said, that's the best question everyone asked me. I'd have to say I'm a comedian who's a writer because I love stand-up comedy. I don't love writing. I can do it. But it's, I had to force myself. So I tell the young comedian, say, if you aren't a writer and you can't afford other writers then don't waste your time in this business because you have to keep coming up with new material, keep evolving. You know, that's the key to focus on. If you're not a good comedy writer, then take courses on it. When you're writing a joke, basically, there's two things to writing a joke. Number one, comedy is nine-tenths surprise. The audience laughs because they didn't think you were going to say that or do that. So the setup line has to hide the punchline. And the other rule is there are no victimless jokes. 
Who's the victim in this joke? You, me, the society, the government, the airlines, my daughter's eating a punk rocker. Somebody's wrong in this joke. <laughs> yeah. So many of your jokes have like five or six surprises as you continue. I don't know if that's you tagging them over time, but like take, for example, the, the joke that starts where you, you ever walk into a room and you can't remember why you came in. And that joke starts out that way and it winds up... <laughs> It, you know, in a yeah, completely yeah. different area. Is that you tagging it, or is that it's original construction? Well, and, and sometimes it sometimes it's original construction. Sometimes when you're out there, you know, you throw a line out that you thought was a setup line, and the audience laughs, and your brain goes, "Oh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> Now you start. Now you learn to pause. Most comedians, when they start out, and I was one of them, you couldn't stand silence, so you went right through your material mm-hmm. like a machine gun. Mm-hmm. But as time goes by, you learn how to, where to pause. Jack Benny was my favorite comedian. You know, he, I, I, Richard Pryor and Jack Benny, I emulated. Uh, Pryor came from a neighborhood like I came and came from. So when I saw him work, I said, "Wow!" Yeah, I, I felt like I was back in the street corner, back in the south side of Chicago. But Jack Benny, to me, a person is an artist in any endeavor. When they make their work look one word, effortless. Frank Sinatra made singing look easy. You will be my music. You will be my song. You say, I can do that. No, you can't. He just made it look like you could. <laughs> Jack Benny made comedy look easy. Yeah. Your, your, your comedy is so relatable. And do you think it stems from your humble beginnings on the south side of Chicago, uh, less than perfect economic circumstances, your family situation. But all those experiences, I think, are what make you relatable and, and uh, middle Americans can understand you and get behind you. Well, you know, I was a, I was a bartender, too, in a neighborhood tavern. Yeah, I was in the corner bar, and I'm, I'm a neighborhood guy. One of the things, of, in all the years I toured with Frank Sinatra, uh, one of the things that I, I, to this day I cherish a guy from the New York Times one time, we were in a restaurant called Patsy's, and uh, he said, um, jokingly, the guy was walking out, and he, Frank and I were eating, and he stopped, and he said uh, to Frank, why do you keep this guy Dreesen around? You said to be funny. He said, why do you keep this guy Dreesen around all the time, opening for you? And Frank said, you mean besides the fact that he's funny? And the guy said, yeah, besides that. Frank said, well, if I'm a saloon singer, and I am, then Tommy's a saloon comedian. He said, by that I mean we're just a couple of neighborhood guys. And I always treasured that quote because mm-hmm. that's exactly what I am. I'm a guy from the neighborhood. I never, you know, that's who I am. If I close my eyes, Fritz, and all the things that I've done in my life, if I close my eyes sometimes, I see a little boy with his shoe shine box going from tavern to tavern, shining shoes in the cold snow. I mean, that's who I am. That's where I came from. You know? That's what you get out of your book is really that sense of wonder. Here I am in a, in a private jet with Sinatra, yeah. and then you just put it this way. Sinatra was probably thinking the same thing. Like, look where I am. Uh, I'm 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 traveling the world in in, in a private jet, and, and I stop every room I enter. That's what I always appreciated you. You always appreciated your success, and talked about Frank in glowing terms and where you were. I always appreciated that. That's, uh-huh. People who are comfortable in their own skin have the ability to do that. You know, I have a one-man show I do now called The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh. It's a 90-minute show, but I do stand-up I do stand up comedy. But I segue over to a bar, and I tell a funny story, and, and all the lights go out in the, in the theater, and on the screen, Frank comes out singing. It's quarter to three. There's mm-hmm. no one in the place. You know, I'm, I'm behind the bar, and it's like he's singing to me. When he goes off the screen, you know, uh, the spotlight hits me, and now I'm in a bar, and I've come home, and, and the audience is in a bar with me. And I tell him the first time I heard that voice, I was 10 years old, shining shoes in a bar on the south side of Chicago, and he was on the jukebox. And then I take the audience from that little boy, 
hearing Sinatra on the south side of Chicago to one day carrying his coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills, California. So I take them on that journey. And, and, uh, and as I'm telling stories, pictures are coming on the screen authenticating the stories as well as videotape of Frank and I. But it goes into my early, you know, my growing up and then uh, to, you know, to uh, going in the military and after the military, Tim Reed and I becoming America's first black and white comedy team. And, and it, it, as I'm telling stories, like I say, pictures are coming on the screen until I finally get to, to Sammy Davis and all that and Smokey. But to Frank Sinatra and then to his funeral. And at the end, I have the audience in tears. But then I close with a funny monologue and I toast them at the end with a Jack Daniels, which was Frank's drink of choice. And I toast them. I say, I wish for all of you what Frank Sinatra wished for you. The very last song that he ever sang is that the best is yet to come. Mm-hmm. Good night, everybody. And then Frank is singing the best is yet to come oh as they're leaving the theater. But I bring this up for a reason. Only twice in my career. I always thought a good comedian could make you laugh for an hour, an hour and a half. But a great comedian can make you laugh and cry in that hour and a half. I only saw two people do that, Richard Pryor and um, Red Skelton. Fritz. Fritz? People just weep. I'm hoping eventually you can get him to laugh (laughs) at the same time. But I wanted to say something about your relationship with Frank. And Laurie and I uh, were talking about this earlier, that film you sort of narrated called Sinatra's Palm Springs, which Mm -hmm. I saw, which is a great film. But you sort of describing your relationship with Frank and then Frank's relationship with Palm Springs. But there's some really touching moments in there about you riding around with Frank at two o'clock in the morning because you couldn't sleep and wanted a a sympathetic ear. I, I always wonder about comedians' relationships with the acts they open for. Frank was supportive of you, and you would you would agree that Frank was your friend. Is that always the case? How about your relationship with Sammy Davis Jr. and, and Smokey? Were they supportive of you? As, oh, the, you just named the two of my all-time chefs. Sammy, Sammy took me on the road the first time. First of all, when you made mention of Laurie, I want to point out that's Laurie DeWall, probably the greatest publicist. Outstanding. Right. Show business has ever known. Her. Let's yeah. have a round of applause yeah. for Yes, and she, and she makes up 50% of our studio audience. Yeah. <laughs> and, we, and Laurie introduced... And eventually we're going to have to pay her, but right now she's just kind of proving you know, Somebody told me when I first started out, and we'll get to you back to your thing, somebody said said, when you want someone to represent you, I was looking for representation. I was brand new. I was with Tim Reed at the time. They said, find somebody, find a shoe clerk, but find somebody that's as passionate about your your endeavor as you are. Find find somebody that really believes in you. And that's Laurie DeWall. She's it. She overachieves. Please, Laurie, don't call me again today and do another booking for 1030 tomorrow. (laughs) She's She's excellent. Well, I I know that, well, I, I don't know. I think that there's a lot of comedians that open for a lot of performers, but I think that your relationship with Frank is uh, in a category by itself mm-hmm. in that he w- no one will ever be that famous ever again because we're not all looking in the same direction. We're not all listening to the same radio station. So he, he was in this stratosphere of being Frank Sinatra, and he needed someone to be his best friend his buddy his his co-pilot and that was you so it wasn't just that you're funny i think he needed you you know it, it, thank you I, I i don't know that i was his closest but he he said a lot of friends in his life but what i picked up on him and maybe it was kind of his neighborhood bartender you know i picked up on personalities all the time which helps us as an actor as, as a comedian as well but but i picked up when i first met him that he didn't want another fan he had millions of fans he wanted a pal and so you know how many times i want i always joke i say you know i stayed with frank sinatra all these years he never knew how much in awe of him i was because i never let him see it but i was a fan too you know how many times i wanted to say frank 
ooh, what you just did to the man, that was fantastic. Or, you know, you know, Franken from here to eternity, or, or and the man with the golden arm. Mm-hmm. But I then I would be just another fan. And I didn't I know he, he didn't like people fawning over him, first of all. You know, I picked up on that early, so I never ever we never got in that kind of conversation. But we were writing around Frank never went to bed till the sun came up, in answer to your earlier question. He never went to bed till the sun came up. He was nocturnal. So what, what, uh, when I'd stay in his compound, he had this fabulous compound down in the desert um, that had a, you know, a big security gate. And, and then he had a main house there. And then, of course, swimming pools and tennis courts. And he even had a room twice the size of this that had every electric train, every train that was ever made in the world. The, in the center was all these trains that would go from the East Coast to the West Coast, and he'd operate them. But on the walls, all along the walls were brackets with trains from France, Germany, Italy, all over, you know. He, was, uh, he loved trains. So he would go in there sometimes and put on an engineer's hat, and, <laughs> and he'd, you know, it was really interesting. That's hard to imagine, actually, but yeah. Frank putting on an engineer's hat. But, you know, so uh, I have a lot of funny stories in that area, too. But, but then on the outer perimeter of the compound were all his bungalows. Uh, New York, New York, Strangers in Night, Tender Trap, My Way, named after his songs. And his house guests, when you would go down there, when I first, first time I went down there, his house guests, Gregory Peck and his wife, Veronique, Kirk Douglas and his wife, Anne, um, Jack Lemon and his wife, Felicia, uh, Angie Dickinson, uh, Clint Eastwood, and whoever he was dating at the time. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and all these, these are Robert Wagner, Joe St. John. These were people, as a little boy in Harvey, Illinois, I watched it in the movies. Oh, my gosh. And I, I was so, in, first time I went there, I was at this cocktail party, and I'm going, oh, my God, what am I now doing? what am I going to do? What am I doing here? That's it's, great. I was, you know, you want to pinch yourself, you know. But... Anyhow, so he, but he liked. He would uh, stay up till dawn, and and when I'd stay down there, sometimes he'd come and get me out of my bungalow and say, "Tommy, let's take a ride," and we'd ride around the desert till the sun came up. In those times, where we became close, in that car, he wasn't the great Frank Sinatra, and I wasn't this comedian. He was a kid from Hoboken, and I was a kid from Harvey, Illinois. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's what we talked about, the neighborhood. My mom was a bartender, you know. I grew up around, you know, the saloons. His mom and dad owned a saloon called um, Marty O'Brien's Bar and Grill. His father boxed under the name of Marty O'Brien because in his day, in those days, Italians were, there was so much prejudice against Italians that, that the Italians boxed under Irish names. And, wow, and, you know, I didn't know that. That's you, know, you know, the largest, some of the largest lynchings in this country are done to Italian Americans. You can look it up sometimes. I've got all the information in here. But uh, they were tough. That's why Frank was tough. His mom was tough. His mom was. Oh, a, no. She could have been a boxer. But right? fifty years before that, it was the Irish that were yeah. the newcomers. So, I, and you're an interesting hybrid because you always felt kind of Italian, but you were. Your name is Tom Dreesen. You were raised in an Irish family. So, talk about finding out or just becoming aware on your own that. Oh my gosh, I I am Italian. She read the book. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I would recommend that not only to comedians. It's just a great American success story. It's called Still Standing. It's available everywhere. It's available at my house. You can just it's so it's so good. Yeah, it's thanks. really it's a wonderful story about you and Sinatra. But again, it points to one of the things that makes me smile about you is you appreciate your success. Uh, I remember you talking about it at the Improv like you were kidding a candy store. You couldn't believe it was mm. happening to you. I, I truly thank God every day of my life that I found comedy, and comedy found me. It was purely by accident. I never thought I'd ever be in show business. It was came out of nowhere, but it was what I, the first time I ever went on stage, something I had written got a laugh, and it was like one of those B-movies where the dark clouds open up and the sun bursts through, mm-hmm. and my whole being went, oh, yeah, oh, this is what this I is want. This is what I'm supposed to be. Oh, this is what I want to do, and, and, and I... Uh, I, I 
we'll get to your answer. Yeah. But, but <laughs> that night, that was a Friday night, and it was Tim Reed and I on stage, and something I had written, we went to this little jazz bar. I couldn't sleep all night long. I, I got up in the morning and went down to the corner church where I had been an altar boy, where I sang in the choir, where my mother sang in the choir when she was a little girl. And, and it, was no, it was a Saturday. There were no services. I got on my knees. I prayed. I said, God, I, now I know. Oh my now, now I know. Because I, I, I had been praying, saying, God, what is it I'm supposed to be doing? I'd be in the bar at 2 o'clock in the morning with my buddies and saying, I don't belong in here, but I didn't know where I belonged. You know? So that moment when it hit me, I mean, I'm on my hands and I said, God, now I know. I'll do charities. I promise I'll, I'll do. And I was doing all these <laughs> promises. I wanted to put an addendum to that contract a few times, but <laughs> but the thought that you might make a living making people laugh overwhelmed me, you know. Mm-hmm. And and, th- and from that point on, that was what I was going to do, you know, hell or high water, you know. In answer to your question, my mom was a bartender in a neighborhood bar for her brother-in-law Frank Polizzi uh, and her sister's husband, and. Um, and, uh, you know, and of course, m- my father was Walter Dreesen, you know, but m- I growing up, I looked just like Frank Polizzi's sons. He was my uncle, b- b- my mother's brother-in-law, you know, I looked just like his sons. And I would go places and people say, hey, Polizzi, where are you going? I'd say, my name isn't Polizzi. My name is Dreesen. Oh, I said, Frank Polizzi's my uncle. They'd say, oh, yeah, they kind of thought maybe my mom was his sister or something like that. But... About the time that I start learning where babies come from, I'm only 13 years old, and I'm learning where babies come from, I didn't want to think that my mom and dad did this, let alone my mom and my uncle. (laughs) So so I was in a dilemma, you know. I'm in a dilemma. But anyhow, I finally, let me digress. This was a tough human being. He wasn't any bigger than I was. But he owned, he owned, he worked all of it. He came from Italy when he was seven years old. He wor- worked, he, he, you know, spoke fantastic English. He was a singer in a band. He had a band called Frank Polizzi and the Venetian Ears. Um, he threw, threw the mob. The mob took it, brought a jukebox into his bar one time. He took it out and threw it out on the sidewalk. He got in serious nice. trouble. I witnessed that, that incident. That was really, I was just a kid with my shoeshine box. But he was a tough guy. And, and but he loved me. He was always real good to me. And when I was Shannon Shoes, he'd slip me an extra quarter or something like that. But one day I took him for a walk and I said, I need to talk to you. You know, I was 14 years old, 13, 14 years old. I said, I need to talk to you. He said, what, what is it, Tommy? And we took a walk and I said, I think you're my father. And he said, why do you think such a thing like that? I said, because I don't look like my brothers and sisters. They're all fair haired. And I look like Don and Buzz, his sons, you know. And he walked for a little while and he said, well, it's true. He said, but you can go now and tell the world you have that right. But it would ruin your mom and dad's marriage. And it would ruin mine as well. But I can't stop you from telling that truth. And I said, I don't want to ruin anybody's marriage. I just needed to know. And and and, and so after that, I became very uncomfortable around him for a few years. I, I was, you know, it seemed. But then I went in the service. And I came home and leave one time. And it was all behind me. At that point, I didn't care who planted the seed. I just needed to know, you know. And so we became very, very, very close uh, till the day he died. But what I, what, you know, what I want to tell you is that when I was a little boy, there were carnivals all around in the area I grew up in. There was one in the suburb next to me called St. Donata's Carnival. And every year I'd go there, it was all Italian. But I was a little boy, but I would go there and the smells and this, dun, 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 dun. I knew I belonged, I knew I belonged there. I, you know, even I had an Irish mom. You know, and she had me sing these Irish songs, you know, Danny Boy and all these things in Galway Bay. But I, when I went there, there was something that I sensed that I really belonged there. It was, 
it was really kind of interesting, you know. But anyhow, that's... First of all, it was very brave of you to have the guts to ask your biological father that question. At such a young age. Subsume that at a young age. And it was brave of him to be honest with you. He had to take a minute, walk a couple of steps, and then tell you the truth. But that was brave of both of you. But did it... Did it change your identity at all? Did it kind of redirect your life and sort of change your self-perception? Well, the hardest part was it was our secret. My my father didn't know. Walter Dreesen didn't know. My, my mom didn't know. I knew. My aunt did not know who I adored. She was my favorite aunt. Mm-hmm. And, and it would have crushed her, you know, that th- thought that her sister might have an affair with, with her, her husband. And it was just one of those things that, that they, you know, that I, I had to keep that secret. I couldn't tell anybody that it was our secret, you know. I couldn't, and not that I really wanted to at the time, but it was as years go by. I mean, I can't tell you how many times people would say, and you know, you're Italian. I said, no, well, you're Italian. One time in New York, when I was in the service, I uh, there was a neighborhood there where we, all the sailors went into this bar. There was an Italian family there named Florenza, and they got angry with me. <clears throat> they really liked me, but I was dating her daughter, but. <laughs> and you know, but but when I told them I wasn't Italian, you know, because I didn't want to go through that whole mishmash, they got very angry with me. Yes, you are. What are you talking about? You're not Italian. <laughs> you know? wow. But and then then of course when I went to show business, I'm doing all these Italian charities and everything like that, and still I didn't let anybody know that, you know. And then finally, Frank passed away, <clears throat> you know, and um, and um, my uh, and we had a confrontation one time, Frank and I and my mom, and we had a little conversation, but nonetheless. Uh, you know, he passed away. My aunt passed away. Did Frank know that story? What, what story about? About your father? You mean Sinatra? I'm, 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 yeah. Yeah. Well, I told him about it. It's in the book, in fact. Mm-hmm. He said, Tommy, that happens more than you'll ever know. Oh, and, and I'm certain, sure. And, you know, mm-hmm. Yeah. But anyhow, it was, it was, uh, it was a, 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 an interesting, interesting time in my life. Again, because I had to keep that to myself, you know. And How did you get hired with Frank the first time? Was it from a Tonight Show appearance or Sammy? From being glib at the right time. I was opening for Smokey Robinson at Caesars in Lake Tahoe, and I came off stage one night because Frank was appearing at Harris. And again, fate. I was with Smokey for seven nights. I didn't know which, I was gonna go see Frank. He was appearing at Harris. I was always a fan. You know, I'd seen him perform. I was always a fan. For some reason, I went on this particular night. I came off stage and I went straight over to Harris. I went running into the showroom. As I was going in the showroom, the vice president of Harris Hotel, a man named Holmes Hendrickson, very powerful guy, was out in front with a big heavyset guy with a cigar. And I was running into the showroom because I didn't want to miss Frank's opening. Frank Sinatra created more excitement walking to a microphone than most people do with their whole act. When he'd walk out, the crowd would just go crazy. In all the years I toured with him, I never got over how they reacted to him. But anyhow... Uh, I'm rushing in the showroom because I wanted to see his opening, and the vice president of Harris Hotel said, Tommy, come here, come here. He introduced me to this guy with a cigar. He said, Tommy, this is Mickey Rudin. Well, I recognize the name. That was Frank Sinatra's lawyer, you know, very powerful guy. And he, he said, Mickey, this is Tom Dreesen, and I think Tom would make a great opening act for Frank oh Sinatra. And the lawyer got a pained expression on his face like he heard that a million times, you know. And he winked at the vice president, but I caught the wink. He said, hey, kid, if I gave you a week with Frank, would you want more than uh, 50000 I said, Mr. Rudin, put it this way. If you gave me a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And that's what he did. He laughed just like that. And he said to Holmes, he said, I like this kid. <laughs> and a week later, 
they gave me a call to work with Frank. Well, it proved that you were humble and you had to be to open for Frank, so that was cool. Well, wait, Man, that's a good First point. of all, if Barbara Streisand opened for Frank, she's an opening act. Whoever opened for Frank was opening <laughs> right. act. Yeah. But anyhow, so a, a, a week later, I, I, um, I, they gave me a call. I, to, would I like to work one week with Frank at the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City? And I did. And the second I was with him, he and his wife Barbara took me out to dinner. And I can remember like it was yesterday. He was sitting across from me. He set his knife and his fork down. He said, I like your material, and I like your style. I'd like you to do a few other dates with me if you're interested. And I didn't say, let me check my calendar. <laughs> I said, yeah. And it turned into 14 years, 45, 50 cities a year, a great friendship. And, and I, I miss him every day of my life. You know? I want to talk about Letterman because one of my, um, plus being one of his biggest fans, because he changed the talk show world, was that he was always so supportive of friends. You and John Witherspoon and uh, George and... uh, Jeff Altman and... and Jeff Altman. And and Jeff Altman went on there for 20 years and did the same five minutes every time he went on there. It was never not funny. (laughs) I know. Right. And and, uh, George Miller. And, you know, when George was deathly ill, Letterman supported him for hundreds of thousands worth of dollars. He was always supportive of his friends. Am I right about that? Absolutely. And, you know, he's... he, He... me, I got to tell you a funny story. He called me a while back and he said, hey, Tom, every time you do an interview or every time I do an interview and they say, how did we meet? Well, I always tell the same story. You came off stage at the comedy store. I had just arrived from Indianapolis in his old red pickup truck, you know, and you came off stage and I had seen your set and I complimented you on your set. And I said, yeah. He said, well, it's a boring story. I said, well, it's the truth. He said, I don't care. It's boring. From now on, tell people. You came off stage at the comedy store. I was in a parking lot, and I stole some material from you, and you beat the hell out of me in the parking lot. <laughs> said, I said, now, why would I want to tell a story like He said, because it's a better story. I said, Dave, you got 32 million fans. They'll be chasing me through airports. He said, I don't care. It's a better story. So about two weeks go by, he calls me. He said, do you know the governor of Illinois? And I said, no, I met him, but I don't know him. Dave said, well, and he, he said, my wife, Regina, has a friend in Chicago whose son is an adult, has autism. And the, the artistic adults, they plant corn and flour, I mean, corn and, and, um, and uh, tomatoes and peas and stuff and beans. And when it comes in fruition, they give it to the homeless. And the state is coming to take that property away. I want to talk to the governor about that. I said, gee, I don't know him, but I do know the Senate Majority Leader, John Cullerton's a buddy of mine. Let me call him. I called him. He said, oh, Tom, tell Dave, don't worry about that. We're taking care of that. That's all being taken care of. He was telling me about a statute or something like that. I said, John, could you, if I gave Dave your phone number, would, could, would you tell him, explain it, you explain it better? He said, sure, Tom. I said, oh, wait, one thing, John. When you tell him you're helping him, tell him the reason you're helping him is because Dreesen beat the hell out of him in the parking lot at the comedy store. <laughs> And John's a good guy. He said, okay, now, I wait. Ten minutes go by. The phone rings. It's, I know it's Dave. I, I said, hello, didn't I tell you that's a better story? I told you that's a better story. You know? <laughs> wow. That's how to pass a joke along. Yeah. You know, like it's like, it yeah. has children. <laughs> David, you know, I knew him, you know, back when he was brand new. I love the guy. I went with him the first time he hosted The Tonight Show. All he said all the way, back to Indianapolis, this is it, this is it, this is why I'm exposed. He was so down on himself. He was so, now I'll tell you something really interesting. I'm standing there waiting for Dave to come out. It was the Oscar night and Johnny Carson was hosting the Oscars. So the crowd wasn't even a full crowd when they found out Johnny wasn't there, you know. And it was this new guy, David Letterman. While I'm waiting for Dave to walk out, and he's a nervous wreck, he's scared to death. I'm waiting for him to walk out. I feel this presence behind me. I turn around, it's Tom Snyder 
who had the show that followed Johnny Carson. Mm -hmm. And Tom Snyder said to me, he knew me, but he said, he said, I can hardly wait to see how the crowd reacts when this no name comes out. Oh my God. He wasn't trying to be crude, but he said, when, how do they recommend this no name? A year later, that no name replaced Tom Snyder. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> wow. He Tom Snyder when Tom went and followed him on CBS. Yeah, it, Ka yeah. Karma beat him up in a parking lot. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, but, but you know, the, the interesting thing, Dave Letterman was never a stand-up comedian. When you watch Dave Letterman on stage at the comedy show, he's always funny. Oh, I love the way he handled Nobody did better crowd work. He was the man. Oh, yeah. He could, he, he, he could destroy you. One night, one night, a guy's heckling him, heckling him, heckling him, and, and he was, the guy was drunk, and uh, Dave's trying to deal with the heckler, and finally one of the comics came up and said, Dave, that's Ringo Starr. <gasps> Ringo, at that time... Was you know the, the Beatles were all broke up and Ringo was drinking a lot and and his career was going down the tank and Dave said Ringo Starr he said oh it's great you ruined your career you came here tonight to ruin mine. <laughs> <laughs> He, there's nobody faster. He, he was apparently like the best MC in the history of the. But you know what? Story. He never thought of himself as a stand-up comedian, no. and, and nor nor was it was he. The first time I saw him, when I saw him on nightclub stages, you know, he, he was okay, but he I, he wasn't comfortable. But when I saw him walk through that television studio, oh, yeah. he was home. Yeah, because that's where he cut his teeth no. in, in in the he, studios he, in Indianapolis. There was nobody better. He tells a great story about only having like 15 minutes worth of material and he opened for Helen Reddy and nobody was laughing so it went by in 10 minutes and he was afraid to leave the stage because he wouldn't get paid or something. But anyway. But you know, the other part of that story is that was at the turn of the century in Denver, Colorado, the name of the place. And the other part of it was he goes to his dressing room he bombed with all, only the material he had and the guy said to him, now you got to come back for a second show and it's the same audience. Oh. <laughs> he, he just bombed with the oh. first audience. Yeah, he, he said... He said, I was going out the door. I was going to quit. He, uh, it, 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 you know, it, the, the saddest thing about David Letterman, he doesn't know how good he really is. Mm -hmm. he does, Don't yeah. you think he does on some deep level? I would like to think so, but it, it's, it's not only humility. He just never, you know, some people that are in, so insecure that they don't want to ever admit how good they are for fear it'll go away. Yep. You know what I mean? If I keep, you know, like in other words. And that's where his comedy energy came from. You know, this guy. Yeah. I mean, that was what made us males relate to him but somewhere. see here's the thing we last week had the drummer from blood sweat and tears and they just did a special where he got to mix his own drumming from 50 years ago and finally recognized how good he is mm -hmm. and dave has put together that youtube channel that's curating all all these wonderful moments that we mm -hmm. just live for with you know yeah. play and record on our Betamax so we could watch it twice, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it meant so much to us. And now he gets to revisit it and maybe he has a little more grace for his gift, you know? Well, I, I, I hope so, but, you know, uh, I'll compliment him deliberately just to watch him squirm. Uh. You know, I, I'll say, Dave, you just don't know how good you are. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, how's, how's the kids? Have, you know, he'll change the subject, you know. But once in a while, once in a great while, he's gotten so much better uh, about this, about accepting things like that. But once in a while, he he'll go, yeah, yeah, that was a good time or something like that. But he, you know, he he was so creative and so you know, uh, and I was again, you know, we were all so proud of him for you know. Talk about your first Tonight Show shot, the transformative day in the life of a. Yeah, well, again, in '75, wherever you went in America, and say. What do you do for a living? I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of the mouth was also, have you ever been on Johnny Carson? If you hadn't been on Johnny Carson, as you know, in the eyes of America, you just weren't a comedian. You might want to be one. You might going to be one. But that was the stamp of approval. One appearance on The Tonight Show, Freddie Prince got a sitcom the next day. I did one appearance on The Tonight Show. The next day, CBS signed me to a development deal. I was in the unemployment line with a wife and three kids. 
on my rear end, and that w- I, I got bumped f- three times every you time too. I went there. You did too. My yeah. first time, I got bumped twice. Yeah. So, do you each remember the first joke you told in your first set? I don't. I do, but I don't want. To, it's embarrassing. I don't want. To, <laughs> I, I, when I look back, I look at my. I did sixty-one appearances on the Tonight Is Show. Is that so, still a record? That was a record for many well, years. Well, yeah, I think. Rodney might have done more, and and Joan Rivers might have done oh, more, okay. and David Brenner certainly did more, mm-hmm. you know. But the p- point is that, that you know that uh, uh, every time you did it tonight, so you had to come up with a new five, five minutes. minutes, and it couldn't be two guys going to bar jokes. Johnny wanted the original monologues, so you had the pressure was enormous, and you had to write jokes that could make grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, and the kids laugh. So sometimes when I look at some of those sets I did, I went, I, I wouldn't I have done I that. I wouldn't I, have I done that watch. joke. Uh, but I do remember my closing line. Okay. I got eight applause. I, again, I got bumped three times. The fourth time I go there, I'm in makeup. Fred DeCordova came in the makeup room and he said, I got bad news for you. I said, what? He said, you're going on tonight. <laughs> <laughs> now, now you get a lump in your throat about the size of a grapefruit, you know. And I usually am I'm a calm performer because I, I am a motivation speaker and I... I've read so many books on the powers of the mind. Mm-hmm. The Power of Your Subconscious Mind by Joseph Murphy was a book that really helped me a lot. And so I would always envision myself as a calm, relaxed comedian. You know, But that Tonight Show, the pressure is so enormous. Because mm-hmm. not only did 26 million people watch that show, not only was it a career changer, but my mom had everybody back in Harvey, Illinois watching the show. So if I bomb, I can't even go back home. I got to tell you, that's so funny because it's so reflective of my first time. I got bumped twice before I went on. The first time I got bumped, because Charles Grodin, who was a great storyteller, would not shut up. And the comic went on at 10 after 12, and he was the accordion. If the headliner went longer, they were having a problem with the time, you'd get bumped and go. It was a 90-minute show, what Fritz is referring to. Yeah. yeah. And the second time I got bumped, Heather Locklear had just had some uh, physical enhancements, and Johnny was enamored with her and made that conversation <laughs> go. Long, so I got bumped twice. I was so embarrassed at getting bumped twice. The time I got on, I never even called my parents. I said, well, they'll find out I got on there eventually. (laughs) But this is an interesting experience, and somebody who's done the Tonight Show will appreciate this. Johnny was notoriously socially awkward on a one-to-one basis. No question about it. And David had the same syndrome, too, but in a slightly different way. So the day after I did my shot, and it was a reasonable shot. It wasn't get a cold over to the desk shot, but it was I survived, right? So, and my office was right over stage one of The Tonight Show. And so the day after I did my shot, you know, I hadn't slept the night before. I was on adrenaline high. and I walked over to the commissary, which was out that midway door. And Johnny's car was parked right there. And he had the DeLorean that day. And he always came in at 2 o'clock. And he always had the white tennis outfit on. And I said, ooh, Carson's coming in. I'm going over to the commissary to get a sandwich. I'll walk by, and he's, he'll give me a hug and say it's the greatest performance in the history of The Tonight Show. I walk by Johnny, and literally, I could feel the breeze from his shoulder. He didn't even acknowledge my presence. <laughs> and it scared the crap out of me. I said, wow, I must have tanked big time or said something that made him mad. And I said, so I went right back upstairs, and I called McCauley. Jim McCauley was yeah. the talent coordinator on the phone. I said, I hope you didn't take any heat from me on The Tonight Show last night. Apparently, your boss was not happy with my performance. He said, what are you talking about? And I said, I just came in past Johnny. He was coming into his office, and I walked by him. He wouldn't even say hello to me. And 
and Macaulay's laughing. He said, let me tell you something. If he walked past his mother in the hallway to work, he wouldn't <laughs> say hello to work because his big fear was that if he stopped and talked to you, they had the tours, everybody would gather around, he'd yeah. never make it to his office, so he just kept on walking. Yeah. But for 15 minutes, I was I thought my career joke was, this was over. He wouldn't even talk to me. Most comedians leave the lot. Oh, You're still there. Uh, <laughs> I know, I couldn't get away from it. Fitz Coleman has left the building. <laughs> I, 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 I got eight applause. I, I remember I walked out to that curtain they opened up the curtain and I walked out in the bright lights and I couldn't oh, no. see I couldn't see the That's audience ridiculous. or in shade and I hit my mark and, and I did my first joke and it got a laugh and I did my second joke and it got a laugh and, and, and I did my third joke and Johnny started laughing and Ed McMahon was laughing behind me now I'm on a roll I got like eight applause and I finished I, I was over I finished I said you've been a wonderful audience this is my first appearance on the Tonight Show and show business is a tough life so I want to ask you if you like me just if you like me and you're Protestant say a prayer if you're Catholic, light a candle. If you're Jewish, somebody in your family owns a nightclub. Tell them about me. Please. <laughs> That's a great ending. <laughs> and, and I went back to the curtain, and they called me back out. Craig Tennis come running around and said, go back, go back. Yeah. I said, go back. He said, Johnny, what's I said, go sit by Johnny. Don't go sit by Johnny. Just go back. And now I walked through the curtain and, you know, walked through for the second one. Johnny went like this, and that's when, that's you know, the high song when right he did that. Oh, you know, I know. Yeah, and, and it's I, a comedy bar mitzvah. It's, the, it's, it's like your passage into adulthood. I never stopped working from that day. From wow. that day, I, 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 from the moment after I was doing Dinosaur, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, Johnny Carson, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train. I was the only white comedian on Soul Train. I was doing Hollywood Squares, $20,000 Pyramid. Sammy Davis Jr. took me on the road for three. I mean, that one show. But explain you know, to younger folks that you do that show at 12 o'clock, 1230 in the morning. And then the next day, when we were all looking in the same direction, the next day, how many people had seen that? Or how many people, how did your world change when you woke up the next morning? Oh, I'm, well, here, this is a true story. I woke up the next morning because you don't know, you know, it went that night, you know, pe people would call you in, but I had to file for unemployment. You don't have to sign it certain amounts. You know, I go over to do that. I'm in line, and there's a guy, and I, I never forget I'm in line, waiting, and, and there's a guy in front of me, and he, and he goes like this. He looks around. <laughs> <laughs> Were you on the, were you on the uh, Tonight Show last night? <laughs> now I should have said no, but I go, yeah. He goes, wow, hey, hey, this guy was on the oh, Tonight Show. No. Now, the guy's on the, he's on the Tonight Show, huh? He's in the unemployment line. Do you believe that? <laughs> That's <laughs> like a story out of a movie. Though. It's such a great. Scene. And they were now. Now I was, now I get home, but I don't know while I was gone. I had a little apartment in Van Nuys with a wife and three kids. You know, the phone was ringing off the hook. My wife, when I came home. All hell was breaking loose. There, there was a guy named Lee Curlin from CBS in New York who watched, happened to watch The Tonight Show. So he calls William Morris, uh, a woman named Nancy uh, Doherty. She later became a big head at Columbia Studio or something like that. She was an agent at William Morris. He said, I saw a comedian on The Tonight Show last night. Uh, do you represent him? She said, do you know the name? He said, no, I can't remember the name. But she said, wait, let me call Herb Carp. He handles comedians. And I knew Herb. I played softball with Herb. But William Morris wouldn't let me walk by the building, let alone think about signing me, you know. So she called Herb. And Herb said, oh, that was Tom Dreesen. He's a friend of mine. She said, have we got him signed? He said, no. He said, no. She said, sign him. I got a deal. Because she said to Lee Curlin, he told me later, she said, is this a, uh, you know, you, 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 you found him? Yeah. He, she said, a deal found? He said, yeah, I'd make a deal. So she said, Herb, sign him. We got him. Herb calls me and said, 
Tom, there's a deal waiting for you. You don't have to sign with us. I want you to know CBS wants to sign you to a development deal. I said, Herb, I'd love it because I liked Herb. That and was it, a really cool thing that most agents wouldn't do right no. there. Well, Herb Carp was not. Most William Morris agents have two hearts. One's <laughs> as big as a pea and the other one's just a little bitty one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, wow. But Herb, yeah, Herb was a, he was a class guy, you know. I'll tell you, one of the fondest memories I have of the improv, and I always liked the, just walking in that building gave me an adrenaline rush, but I remember, and I did this a couple of times, where we would sit at the big round table in the corner, which was Bud's table. Bud Friedman was the owner of the improv and the starter of the stand-up comedy business. And it, he and Alex would be there, and it was Bud and Alex and you and Dennis Farina mm-hmm. and me. What's wrong with this picture? So uh, we sat there, and you just spun tales about Frank Sinatra, and that was one of the nights when I realized that, oh, my God, I'm flirting with actual show business here. <laughs> that was before I went on stage, but it was so fun. It was, it was a different thing. I don't know if that still continues at the improv now, but it was, it was, no, a, it think, was a different you, you know, If you played a word association game with me when I was a kid growing up, like if you said uh, love, I'd say mom. If you said baseball, I'd say cubs. If you said show business, I'd say Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., and Dean Martin. Yeah. To me, that was yeah. show business. That, mean, yeah, it was fun. that was the epitome. It was fun just yeah, listening but, but, to the did stories. Did Frank know that you told this, these Frank Sinatra stories? Was he proud of the stories? Well, you know, for a long time, when I was turned with him, I would not talk about him on any interviews um, because I didn't, want, I didn't know how he felt about that. Mm. But, you know, he told me one time, it was really interesting, we were flying, <clears throat> but let me say about Dennis Farina, Laurie DeWall also represented Dennis Farina. I didn't know that. Yes. And, and that's, we should have looked at a bio of you before uh, we hired you. <laughs> <clears throat> and, and, and also, uh, I, Laurie represents me at the same time, Such and Dennis and I actor. loved Such her. He, he, Dennis Farina loved Laurie DeWall, thought the world of her. But one time I was in Frank's private jet. We were flying somewhere going to do a gig, and we were going over Ohio. And I remember on those private jets, they have a a, a map, like a screen that shows you where you're at. And we were going over Akron, Ohio, and I was saying to Frank, I said, Frank, you know what? If we landed right now, right there, with the nearest airport in Akron, and, and we left there and went to the nearest Italian bakery, There'd be a picture of you on the wall, and the owner would swear to God, you can't go on stage every night unless you have two of his cannolis. And Frank said, Tom, does that, he laughed, he says, is that story, is that guy married, does he have kids? Does that story help him sell more cannolis? God bless him. God bless him. He said, it's only when they say, Frank, hit me over the head with a cue stick or something like yeah. that. That bothers me. He was he very said, generous. Remember the shoeshine guy in front of the Tonight Show and it was always a tradition. Sure. I can't. I don't know if the guy's name was George or something. And, and this was the late 70s or early 80s. Uh, if you ask him who gave him his biggest tip, he'd say Frank gave him a hundred dollar bill. Now, in nineteen eighty one, that was a hell of a lot of money. Frank tipped a hundred dollars wherever he went. Yep. <clears throat> Larry Minetti was his caddy when he was twelve years old. He got a hundred dollars. That's crazy. If, if you if you brought Frank a uh, um, uh, pack of camels, which was his cigarette, you got a hundred dollars. He brought him a cup of coffee, Jack and a splash. You got a hundred dollars. The great story is Frank was coming out of Mame San Restaurant here in L.A. and the valet Parker pulled up with his car, and Frank said, "What's the biggest tip you ever got?" And the kid said, hundred dollars." And Frank gave him two $100 bills. And Frank said, by the way, who gave you the $100? He said, you did last Friday, Mr. Sinatra. <laughs> He's outbidding himself. <laughs> you know, I would tell you what he would do. I mean, money, he really didn't care about money. We'd, we'd be in a restaurant sometimes, and it'd be like eight people. And he'd say, Tommy, he'd put a lot of $100 bills just like he'd say, Tommy, take care of everybody. He'd hand it to me. Take care of everybody. And I, I duked everybody, you know, take care of everybody. I'd come back in the car and give him what, the money. He said, did you get everybody? He said, yeah. He, it, it was so beneath him to go uh, 
to get the money so beneath him to see. You know, it's oh, good. You got him up. He was so beneath him to do something like that. And if I, I would have said, but I took a thousand out, Frank, because I'm going to shoot some dice. He'd say, okay. I swear he would not. I never did that. But one time, <laughs> one time coming out of Waldorf Astoria. Uh, we went out the back way, ran away to do a gig, the Waldorf Astoria, and, and uh, the doorman told me this woman jumped out, the security was taking us to the limo, and this woman jumped out and she started screaming, Mr. Sinatra, please, Mr. Sinatra, please, please, and the security kept her back, and they're getting Frank to the limo, and the doorman told me she'd been waiting out there for five hours, hiding in the doorway. Oh. We didn't go out the front door, because Frank would get mobbed going out the front, so we went out the back. Frank's getting in the limo, and she's screaming, please, Mr. Sinatra, please. He finally stops. He goes back, and he sits at the security. Leave her alone. He said, what is it? She said, my husband is home ill. He's very, very, very ill, and he's a huge fan. If I could get an autograph from you, it would mean the world to him. So he said, sure, and he sent the autograph, and she said, oh, what beautiful cufflinks. They were really over $1,000 cufflinks, very expensive. I know where you got them at. She said, he said, oh, thank you, and he finished the autograph, and he took the cufflinks off. He said, give these to your husband. She said, no, no, I don't want them. I was just admiring them. He said, I want your husband to have them. We get in the limo, and I said, Frank, <clears throat> excuse me, I said, that was beautiful, but why did you do that? He said, Tommy, if you possess something that you can't give away, then you don't possess it. It possesses you. And, and he not only talked that was talk. Was he Jesus? No, no, I'm telling you. Not, no, no, he, he, by far he wasn't. But, but you know, but I tell you, Frank Sinatra wasn't a saint, but he did some saintly things in his life, you know. That's a great way to say Yeah, but he... But he he, you know, I got in the car with him, and I said, Frank, you know, why is it? And he told me, if you possess something, you can't give away. You don't possess it, it possesses you. He said, Tommy, nothing we have is ours. Mm-hmm. He said, see that shirt on your back? If you die tomorrow, it's somebody else's shirt. You don't even own that shirt. He said, Aristotle Nassus had billions of dollars, had his own yachts, private jets, his own planes, mansions. And the second he died, it transferred. We're only using it. And he, he not only talked that talk, he walked that talk. You had to be very careful around him. If you're his friend, you couldn't say, oh, what a beautiful watch. He'd take it off and give it to you. You could not say, what a beautiful painting on the wall. He'd take it off the wall and give it to you. His friends had to be really, really careful. You know, when, you, when you first started opening for him, was there any Rat Pack quality to what you did? Like you partied all night and you'd work with Frank and then you guys would go see another guy perform somewhere else Oh, jeez, all the time. He, he never went to bed till the sun came up. When we were in Vegas, you know, after, after the show, you do a couple of shows and then you went out on the strip, see the Trainers, Louis Prima and Keely Smith, uh, you know, all these, these lounge acts that were, you know, so, and with Sammy too, when I was with Sammy Davis, Sammy did the same thing, stay out all night. You know, you'd go into a lounge at three o'clock in the morning and it, 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 the Trainers would be singing, look who's in the audience. We got Sam. Sammy, you're going to sing a song? He'd get up and sing a song. See, how about my co-star, Tommy Dreesen, which is another thing about Sammy. I was an opening act. He never called me that. He always mm. said my co-star. Wow. He was such a generous guy. No more talented person in show business ever. Oh, in history I used to sit in the wings and watch Sammy work night after night. It was like show business 101. Mm-hmm. He could sing as good as anybody out there. He really could. He, Frank Sinatra said, I never heard Sammy hit a clinker. Frank would hit one once in a while, but not Sammy. Mm-hmm. Sammy could sing as good as anybody out there. He could dance better than anybody out there. Mm-hmm. He could do comedy as good as any comedian. He could do impressions, yeah. to me, better than any impression out there. Yeah. He could play the trumpet. He could play the piano. He could play the drums. He was magical. Mm-hmm. I would sit in that wings and watch him night after night, this, this genius of, of show business, you know. And he'd give me such great advice. First time I worked at Vegas was at Caesar's Palace with Sammy Davis. My name's on a marquee with Sammy Davis. I was so thrilled. Yeah. And at, at, at rehearsal, I'm just, you know, what do we do at rehearsal? We do sound check, you know. But the band and everything. Now, everybody leaves, and it's like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I leave out of my dressing room, and I'm walking along the stage just trying to familiarize myself with this stage, you know. Sammy comes out of his dressing room, and he sees me. He comes out, and he said, 
Are you nervous? He always called me babe. Hey, babe, are you nervous? <laughs> I said, well, it's opening night. Caesar's Palace. I've never been in Vegas before. I'm opening for you. Yeah, I'm a little bit nervous. He said, Tommy, see these boards? On the stage, he said, "You earned every one of these boards. Aww. These were. This is your stage. You you belong here. If they if they could do what you do, they'd be up here. They can't do what you do. This is our house." He said, "And wow. you own. This is your stage, and you own it. You know." And he said, "These are all these boards are your dues that you pay." Because I worked the Chitlin circuit that he knew. And I wanted to talk about yeah. the Tim and Tommy were the first black and white comedy team in America, and you had to work the Chitlin circuit when you started, right? There were no comedy clubs in America, right? So the, uh, the Chitlin circuit was affectionately called black-owned, black-operated nightclubs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the twenty grand in Detroit Motown in those days was in Detroit, so all the Motown acts broke their show in at a place called Twenty Grand. A gangster named Bill K. Bush owned the place, you know, and <clears throat> so the twenty grand in Detroit. The High Chaparral in Chicago, the Cotton Club, the Burning Spear in Chicago, the Sugar Shack in Boston, the Club Harlem in Atlantic City. In Atlantic City, the Club Harlem was before gambling. It was on Kentucky Avenue. And opening night in all the nightclubs around the country, you open on a Monday and you close on a Saturday night. The Club Harlem, you opened on Saturday and you closed on the following Friday. But opening show was 10 o'clock at night. Second show was 2 o'clock in the morning. Third show was 6 a.m. Sunday morning. They called it the breakfast show. And all the waiters and the waitresses and all the bartenders, and excuse me, but all the pimps and the hoes from Newark, from Queens, Brooklyn, Manhattan, Bronx, all the pimps brought their ladies down there for the breakfast show. And they tipped big. They'd get them down to 1,300 people. Places packed. The opening act, Mama Lou Parks and her dancers, a big heavyset black woman with all these young kids that danced the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, all the music, right? You know, the 20s, the 30s. And they'd get the audience rocking. Second act was a male singing group. Third act was, they were the sons of Robin Stone. The third act was uh, the quiet elegance of females. Fourth is comedy. And the fifth act would be the Temptations or Smokey Robinson or the OJs or whatever. And I'm the only white guy. 1,300 people. <clears throat> the MC, we set this all up. The MC would say, ladies and gentlemen, you're ready for some comedy. Are you ready for some comedy? Yeah, yeah. Okay, we got a comedy team here. This team came all the way from Chicago, and it's the first time this comedy team has been to Atlantic City. Welcome to the comedy team of Tim and Tom. And Tim would go out by himself. We're really happy to be here. You know, we just flew in, and uh, and uh, the first night we were here, we had dinner, and the people go, we, we, you know, I don't see no we, you know, you know, black, black audiences talk to you, you know. What you talking about, brother? I don't see no we. I see, see, see he. I don't see we. And slowly, I'd come up stage left, and a spotlight would hit me. I'd be, you know, looking around in the spot, and you'd hear him say, oh, what do we got here? Oh, look out now. You know? And I'd work my way. I'm looking in the audience, and I work my way to the center stage. Tim would say, where you been, man? I said, I don't see any of my people out there. <laughs> Tim would go, no, I don't think any of your people are out there. I put my arm around him. I said, well, we better be funny. And he'd say, what do you mean, we, white man? You know, and of course, the room would explode in the laughter. You know, and, and, uh, and then we, we had him from then on. You probably learned a lot about you know, uh, what makes audiences laugh. Because you crossed a line that very few people would cross at that point. Single white comics wouldn't work the Chitlin circuit, right? No. Yeah. So uh, you probably learned a lot about what makes people laugh. Think about this. 1969, we're doing this. In 1969, the largest race riots in the country were in every major city, including my hometown of Harvey, Illinois, one of the largest riots in the country where I was from. Also, the Vietnam, they were protesting the Vietnam War, students all over. America was in utter turmoil. And here we were going across the land trying to make people laugh. Anywhere there was racial tension, we would go. And there were no comedy clubs. So we, we, you know, we do high schools, colleges. 
we did 11 prisons in one year. We did the county jail in Chicago three times in the same year. Wherever they had racial tension, we would go and just try to make people laugh. What I'll take to my grave, and I know Tim says the same thing, I can't tell you how many times people would come up to us at colleges or high schools, young kids, a young white kid would come up and say to us, in those days, you didn't see a black guy and a white guy walking down the street together, let alone on the stage together. So a young white kid would come up and say, you know, I got to tell you something. I have a black friend that I really like. I'd like to reach out to him. But if I do, the white guys are going to call me names. But after watching you and Tim tonight, I'm going to reach out to my, my black friend. Then a black kid would come out and say, you know, I got a white friend. I kind of like the guy, but if I do, the brother's going to wear me out. But after watching you guys, I'm going to reach out to my, my white friend. That happened more than I, I can tell you. And, and, and to this day, it sounds like humble BS, but that means more to me than anything else oh, that no, Tim and I could have accomplished. Wow. There's talk that there is talk about maybe doing a miniseries of somebody playing me and somebody playing Tim. Yeah. Six one-hour miniseries of our life, of what we endured. Again, there were no comedy clubs. So we also worked the Playboy circuit, you know. Yeah, that, was, that, clubs, was, yeah. that was like vaudeville. There were 40 Playboy clubs. 17. 17 or something? 17 in America and two resorts, Great Gorge and... and but I so, talked to so many comics, Paul Rodriguez and a few of these guys that say that was like vaudeville. You could really hone your craft because if you made your bones with the Playboy people, you work all year long all over the place. Well, we did, Tim and I, you know, first of all, they had they had two showrooms, the penthouse and the playroom. Mm -hmm. And you did five or six shows a night in Cincinnati, in Boston, in New York City, in Chicago, in uh, in uh, Los Angeles, in, in uh, Florida, you know. Mm -hmm. you, you'd go on the circuit and you do five, six shows a night. As a comedy team, our timing got bang, bang. Mm -hmm. You know, once, once on that Playboy circuit, a guy reviewed us one time in Chicago, and he said to watch Tim and Tom work. I'm paraphrasing, but it's like watching a master master ping pong match, uh -huh. you know. Uh, because, but, but, but I, I give credit to the Playboy circuit, you know. It was great for honing yeah. it. Yeah. How about Mr. Kelly's? Did you ever work there? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. As a single and with Tim in Chicago, when you made it to Mr. Kelly's, that was the big time. That's mm -hmm. where Barbara Streisand, mm -hmm. you know, got discovered, and and uh, Bette Midler. You know, we opened for Bette Midler one time too. She had this little scrawny little um, keyboard player that had glasses on. <laughs> if you'd have told me that one day he's going to become a sex symbol in America, I'd say you're kidding me. But Barry Manilow, you know, was her of was her keyboard guy. Of course. But yeah, Mr. Kelly's in Chicago. When you made it there. That's Tim and I used to dream about that. That was like the quintessential nightclub in America. Yeah, you you made the big time mm -hmm. there. Yeah, and I and then after the team split up, my first appearance as a single was at Mr. Kelly's. You know, oh, I opened wow. for, opened for Fats Domino. Holy oh cow. wow! Yeah. That's wow. so awesome. Yeah. All right, Tom, do you have anything you'd like to plug before we... Uh... Still standing, his fantastic book, whether you're a fan of stand-up or not, it's just a great American success story by somebody who appreciates all that he's had. That's what I like about it. That, well, it's a double entendre. I've been a stand-up comedian 52 years, but I've been knocked down a lot in my life, physically knocked down, if you read the book. Mm -hmm. And that's what I want. I, I want other people that, if they read it, that, hey... You know, you, you get back up again. You get knocked down, you get back up again, you know. And, and the subtitle is My Journey from Streets and Saloons mm -hmm. to the Stage and Sinatra. Are you still doing the Sinatra show around? You still perform yes, that piece? Yeah. Right? I'm doing it in Richmond, Virginia for Tim Reed, my, my buddy, for his charity. And I'm doing it in Boston. And I'm doing I got a whole bunch of stuff coming up Great. this fall. Well, good. All right. Well, we are going to have all of this in our show notes for you. We would like to thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media. Path Pod, 
button on Facebook where our show page is Media Path Podcast and our Facebook group is Media Path with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. And you can write to us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com and let us know what you've been enjoying. If you enjoy this show, please give us a nice rating in Apple Podcasts and talk about us on social media. You can sign up for our saucy rag of a newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. We want to thank our wonderful guests, Tom Dreesen and Larry Minetti, and our studio audience, Lori DeWall. Unbelievable. Jessica. Jessica. Fan. And, and they've been just absolutely sensational. Our team includes Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Bill Filippiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Garrett Arch, Nick Broussard, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palenker here with Fritz Coleman. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path. That was fun.